We are still uh, plodding our way through Daniel 9 and striving to make sense of this fascinating prophecy of the 77s that God gave to Daniel. Remember that Daniel was, was reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. Interestingly, when you think about it, Daniel was studying prophecy. And he came across the passage in which God said that the people of Judah would be in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel, realizing that the 70 years was just about over, begins to pour out his heart in prayer to the Lord, confessing sin, pleading for God's mercy, affirming the righteousness of God in all that he does, praising the goodness of God, looking forward to the time when God would indeed bring Judah back to the land in fulfillment of his promises to them. And Daniel does this with full confidence that the 70-year chastisement of Judah is about over. The chastisement on Judah for neglecting the seven-year Sabbath for the land uh, for 490 years is now coming to an end. And God sends the angel Gabriel, flying swiftly, our text tells us, to bring a message to Daniel. Gabriel says he was sent with the message for Daniel the moment that Daniel started praying. And he arrived while Daniel was still in prayer. And if we were to read aloud Daniel's prayer from verse 4 to verse 19, we would see that it takes about three minutes, give or take a bit, and I presume that saying this prayer in Hebrew rather than English would take approximately the same amount of time. So in three minutes or less, Gabriel has flown from the presence of God in heaven to the presence of Daniel in Babylon. He was indeed, as Daniel says, flying swiftly. In fact, uh, that makes even today's hypersonic missiles look kind of slow to go from heaven to Babylon in less than three minutes. Well, Gabriel then proceeds to explain to Daniel about another 490-year period, divided up into, into 70 sections of seven that have been planned for, for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Last week, we examined God's stated purposes uh, for uh, this uh, marked-out plan, this determined marked-out plan. There were six of them, six purposes. We'll read them again in just a moment, but we're not going to repeat our explanation of them again this week. If you're interested in seeing those, or if you missed those, or want to look at those again, of course, you can always access last week's message by way of the church website or sermon audio. But as I was preparing this message, I read these verses in several different English translations. I also worked my way through my Bible study program with as much Hebrew information as I could gather and process. And I read a number of different articles and studies on the text. I also ranted a little bit to my kind-hearted wife about all the discrepancies and inconsistencies I was seeing and all the varying opinions on the passage, which she graciously endured, which she always does. <laughs> but along the way in my reading, I came across a quote by Winston Churchill that's certainly relevant to our study. Winston Churchill, way back in 1901, he was writing a letter to the famous British author H.G. Wells, and, and, and he said this, he said, nothing would be more fatal than for the governments of countries to fall into the hands of experts. He said, if a ruler is to be an expert in anything, he should be an expert in everything, and that is plainly impossible. 
And I thought about this quote several times as I was reading all of the theological and prophetic experts who have commented on this particular passage of Scripture over the last 130 years. And I assure you, definitely, I am not an expert in the detailed interpretation of Bible prophecy. But Gabriel did tell Daniel in verse 23, in the, the last part of verse 23, and the first part of verse 25, Gabriel told Daniel to consider and understand the vision. And I believe we can do the same even if we can't answer every single detail. So let's read again slowly today through verse 24, 25, and 26. Then we're going to kind of take it apart in bite-sized chunks. We're going to save verse 27 for next week. Uh, it's just too much that we can't, can't possibly get through it all in, in, in one message. But we're going to look at 24, 25, and 26. Uh, we looked at 24 last week. We're going to read it again this week. So let's read those. You can follow along as I read. Seventy weeks are determined, remember just seventy-sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build a Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Just to give you one kind of an overview, one big overview of this interesting prophecy, verse 24 gives us the purpose or the entire scope of the 77s. What is God doing and why is he doing it? Verse 25 gives us information about the first 69 sevens. Verse 26 will help us understand the gap between number 69 and number 70 of these sevens. And then verse 27, which we'll deal with next week, gives us information about the 70th seven, often called the 70th week of Daniel. So the starting point According to verse 25, the starting point of this 490-year period is when there is a command issued that allows the Jews to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The verse goes on to say that the, that the street, uh, meaning the open square for business and the market, was going to be rebuilt, and the wall, the word literally means a moat or a trench, so it would be part of the reconstruction of the city wall, perhaps the trench for the foundation or for the drainage around the wall. So, so basically, the city itself would be rebuilt and open for functioning business, thus to restore and rebuild the city. People would be living there, the marketplace would be functioning, the walls would provide security, Jerusalem would once again be open for business when this was completed, and, and the angel Gabriel says, there will be troublesome times while it's being rebuilt, it's not going to be smooth sailing, but it will be done. What, what a blessed thought that must have been to Daniel. 
Because, of course, Jerusalem for the last 70 years has been, looked like a bomb was dropped on the place. No bombs in those days, but that's what it looked like. I mean, the place was just absolutely demolished. It piles of rubble everywhere. Nobody living there. And I'm sure as, as, as Gabriel is saying this to Daniel, he's thinking, man, it's going to be like it was when I was a kid in Jerusalem. The marketplace was buzzing. People coming and going, buying and selling, economic activities, close the gates at night for security. We all sleep peacefully. It'll be just like the old days when I was a kid. Now Jerusalem is a shambles, burned and wrecked and trashed like a, like a ghost out. But Gabriel says there's coming a day, Daniel, when there will be a command to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And that will start the 77s. That will start the 490-year clock. So when was that? Well, if you look through the Old Testament in Ezra and Nehemiah, you see that there are four commands by Persian kings regarding Jerusalem. Three of them are recorded in the book of Ezra. One of them is recorded in the book of Nehemiah. We won't take the time to read all of the Persian decrees, but if you're interested, I'll give you the references. You can read them at a later time. I do want to read the first one in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. The first four verses, if you turn back to Ezra, or you can just listen as I read through this. Ezra chapter 1, let me read you the first four verses. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you, among all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. Here is what we assume is an unbelieving king, a Persian king, who says, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Interestingly, this decree was prophesied by Jeremiah and also Isaiah. And we won't take the time to turn there, but some of you that like to do some extra reading and Bible study, I would encourage you, look at the last few verses of Isaiah 44 and the first few verses of Isaiah 45. And if you read that, you will see that God calls Cyrus, this king here, he calls him by name, he calls him his shepherd, he says, I will stir him up to send Judah back to start cleaning up the city and rebuilding the temple. Now the fascinating thing about that, if you read that portion in Isaiah 44 and 45, you'll see that God says, I'm going to give all the kingdoms of the earth uh, in, in that whole region to Cyrus, the king of Persia. What's even more fascinating is Isaiah wrote that a hundred years before Cyrus was even born. He called him by name. He said what he was going to do, how he was going to do it, and when he was going to do it. 
And Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, uh, has a note in some of his writings that indicate that Daniel showed Cyrus this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. And so Cyrus, when he writes out his decree, he says, the Lord God of Israel, he is God. And that you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your city. That was the decree that ended the 70-year captivity. But that's not the decree that started the 490-year prophetic clock. Because there's no mention in here to rebuilding the walls and, and all of that. Just go back and rebuild the temple, Cyrus said. Then in Ezra chapter 6, uh, they were having a lot of trouble, and the Persian king told all the neighboring people to leave the Jews alone and let them keep rebuilding the temple, another decree. Then in Ezra chapter 7, there's another decree where, where, where Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the, the priest, permission to go back and take gold and silver uh, and, and all of the religious articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and take them all back to Jerusalem. And I just thought, what a fascinating thing. The, the, the Babylonians had taken everything. Now, a hundred years later, the Persians were given it all back. How cool is that? The Jews could restore temple worship with its offerings and its sacrifices and its feast days. They had everything that they needed to, to totally refurbish the temple. That Even though it had been sitting in Nebuchadnezzar's palace for all those years, now a hundred years later the Persians are giving it all back to them. And the Persian king says, take all that stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took from your temple and take it back to Jerusalem with you and put it back in the temple. That was the decree in Ezra chapter 7 verses 11 to 26. But there's, there's one problem with those first three d decrees is that they, they all deal primarily with the rebuilding of the temple and the refurbishing of the temple. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, and I would like you to turn there if you would please, Nehemiah chapter 2, we see a very interesting thing that, uh, that, a, that King Artaxerxes says to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. If you were to read Nehemiah chapter 1, you'd see that, that some friends of Nehemiah's came back from Jerusalem, and, and he was asking them, what's going on in Jerusalem? And they say, oh man, it's really bad there, it's tough. I mean, yeah, we got the temple rebuilt and all that's going, but man, the walls are broken down and people are coming into the city and stealing stuff, and I mean, it's just, everybody's in really depressed and discouraged. And so, in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, it says, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. No, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid because you couldn't be sad moping around in the presence of the king. They didn't like that. And, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, I might, might stop to pause. That was a fast prayer, was it not? And the king says, What is your request? I prayed, and then I answered him. He didn't take too long. He probably, help me, Lord, probably, then he answers the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. 
Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, the Euphrates, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Artaxerxes, this king, sends Nehemiah back to rebuild the city and the walls. This is the decree that, that the angel Gabriel was talking about in Daniel 9. When, when, the going, when the decree goes forth to rebuild the city and the walls, that's what happened here in Nehemiah and chapter 2. And now Artaxerxes has said, we can't know for sure what the influence may have been, but this is just an interesting historical connection. The Artaxerxes of Nehemiah here, this king, his father was the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. So this king, who's giving Nehemiah permission to go back and rebuild the city, his stepmother was Esther. Just a curious connection. You can't help but wonder what God may have used. Nehemiah obviously had favor with the king. God obviously stirred his heart to do it. But you can't help but wonder what influence Esther may have had in turning his heart toward the Jewish people. And I am inclined toward this being the starting date of the 77s. Nehemiah gives us this date, Nisan, the month of Nisan, in, in the first, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. Historians are not absolutely certain of the precise day of the decree, how it lines up with the various calendars. Some say Nisan the first would have been that year, March the 5th. Others say it would have been on our calendar, March the 14th. Some say Artaxerxes' 20th year was 445 B.C. Some say it was 444 B.C. I'm not going to argue that point. It would be fun to spend 150 hours researching it, but I can't do that. There is always some variation in the calendars between the Hebrew calendar and the Persian calendar and the early Roman calendar, which evolved into the Julian calendar, and now the Gregorian calendar, which is the one we currently use for the last 450 years. But, but, but okay, regardless of all that, we've got a date. The month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And God's prophetic clock, according to Daniel 9, begins to tick the 490 years on that day. Now the angel Gabriel, back to Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that from that decree until the Messiah appears... Verse 25, back in Daniel 9, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. Seven groups of sevens, sixty-two sevens, or sixty-nine sevens. Why is it di divided up like that? Well, most Bible students believe that the seven sevens, the forty-nine years, clocks the time of the restoring and the rebuilding of the city. 
The walls went up very quickly under Nehemiah's direction. But there was continual trouble. And according to the book of Nehemiah, he made several trips back to Jerusalem, trying to get things operating smoothly and correctly in the eyes of the Lord. But the seven sevens, 49 years, and the 62 sevens, 434 years, add up to 483 years. Now stick with me here. Don't let your brain go to sleep on me and all these numbers, things floating around. If you start in 445 or 444 BC and you count up 483 years, you know when you're going to wind up? 32 or 33 AD. You know when Passover was? The 14th day of the first month, Nisan, early April on our calendar. You know when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, presenting himself to the nation as the Messiah? One week before that, before Passover, we call it Palm Sunday. So from the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to the time that Jesus presented himself to the nation as their Messiah, you count up 483 years, taking into consideration the leap years and the calendar variations, and you are going to land on Palm Sunday, the year Jesus was crucified. So the angel Gabriel basically tells Daniel precisely to the day when the Messiah was going to appear. Let me show you a fascinating passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Very interesting passage, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. If you have done much reading in the Gospels, you may remember Jesus telling people on several occasions to not say anything about who he was. You remember the phrase Jesus said quite often, my hour has not yet come. He said that on several different occasions. Don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. My hour has not yet come. But now look at what he does in Luke 19. It's so we're going to start to read in verse 29. Luke 19, verse 29. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage, and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent and went their way and found it just as he has said to them. Of course, Jesus knows everything. He knew where the colt was. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? Jesus knew he would say that, so he gave them the answer already. And they said, The Lord has need of him. So they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on the colt and set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. You know, back in the book of, of Zechariah, hold your place here, we're not done with this passage yet. We don't need to, don't need to turn to this, but back in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah prophesied, he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and has salvation. He is lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples, knowing this prophecy, seeing what Jesus was doing, began to praise God and shout the words of a psalm about the Messiah. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Other Gospels record they're shouting Hosanna, which means save us now. Look at the next verses, verse 37. And then as he was drawing near in the descent to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those are quotes from Psalm 118 and another and another Psalm. And some of the Pharisees, verse 39, called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why did they say that to him? Because they also understood the prophecies and they knew exactly what was going on. They knew that, Je- they were, that the crowd was calling Jesus the Messiah and they were mad that Jesus was letting them do it. Master, rebuke your disciples. You're not, you're not the Messiah. Rebuke your disciples. You're riding into Jerusalem on this cold. They all think you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, verse 40, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, and this is an important thing, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And look at this phrase, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus, of course, is prophesying in those verses the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened about 40 years later. But he says to the, he says to Jerusalem as he weeps over the city, you did not know this was your day. You did not know the time of your visitation. You should have known exactly when the Messiah was coming because the angel Gabriel told Daniel all about it 500 years ago. Jesus weeps over the city. You did not know this was your day. <clears throat> so you got 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. The 490-year prophetic clock was ticking. But there's more information in that prophecy. Look back, if you would, at Daniel chapter 9. More beautiful, incredible things that relate to us. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, after the 62 sevens, after the 483 years, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Two things that are going to happen right after the Messiah presents himself as as the Messiah. The first thing is the Messiah will be executed. That's what that phrase cut off means. It is a Hebrew idiom for execution, for the death penalty. You see it all over the Old Testament many places. He will be cut off, means he will be executed. He'll, he, the, the death penalty will be, will be instituted for him, or, or will be in, uh, laid upon him. So the Messiah is going to be executed, but notice he says, but not for himself. 
A beautiful picture of what we call the substitutionary atonement. The death of Christ for us. Taking our place. Being our substitute. Messiah, the angel Gabriel says, he's going to receive the death penalty, but not for himself. He's going to be dying for us. Then the second thing that's going to happen is the people of the prince who is to come, which we'll talk about that more next week, who is going to, de- he's going to, he's going to destroy the people, are going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. It's going to be overwhelming, horrifying, and the result will be Jerusalem and the temple will be crushed again. That's what he means by the end of it. The end of the destruction will be like a flood. It will be overwhelming. And until the end of the war, desolations are determined. That it's going to be just this desolate. In other words, Jerusalem is going to look like it looked after, after Nebuchadnezzar got done with it. So who are the people of the prince who is to come? Well, we know from history that the Romans absolutely destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They slaughtered nearly a million Jews, burned everything in the city that would burn, and when the gold overlays in the temple melted and ran into the cracks of the stone, they literally dismantled the temple walls stone by stone to scrape the gold out of the cracks. Which is, if you remember what we just read in Luke 19, that's what Jesus said. The stones will not be set on, on one another. And he said, you, your, your city is going to be demolished. You, you will all be killed. Over, they killed over a million Jews in a matter of a couple of weeks. Slaughtered them by the millions. Or by the hundreds of thousands. Dismantled the whole temple. Destroyed the city. In fact, that's what Jesus said would happen when he wept over the city. That's what he said to the women who were weeping for him on his way to the cross. Remember, Jesus said to those women, don't don't weep for me. He said, weep for yourselves and for your children. Because many of those women weeping for Jesus on the way to the cross, and certainly their children, would have been alive 40 years later when the Romans leveled the city. It is exactly what Gabriel describes to Daniel five centuries before it happened. Leopold Kahn was a European rabbi from Hungary. He was studying the prophecy, this prophecy of the 77s. And he came to the conclusion, unsaved Jewish rabbi, just reading through the prophecy of Daniel, he came to the conclusion that the Messiah has already come. Because he says the Messiah was going to come before the Romans destroyed the city. That was in chapter two, that was in verse, verse 26. He said, I, he said, I mean, the Messiah has to be here. There's, because the Messiah had to come, and then he had to die, but then, but then he, had to be, he had to be here before, you know, before the Romans destroyed the city. So, so Leopold went to an older rabbi that he knew, that he thought was well-versed in the Scripture, and he said to him, where's the Messiah? Luke 9.26 says that, that he has to come before the Romans destroy the city. Well, where's the Messiah? The older rabbi shrugged his shoulders and says, I don't know. He said, maybe he went to New York City. <laughs> so Leopold Kahn sold almost everything he owned. And he moved to New York City in 1892 looking for the Messiah. One night he was walking the streets of the city. He walked down the road. Or he, he heard singing. He went inside. It was a gospel mission. He heard a gospel message. And that night... 
Rabbi Leopold Kahn received Jesus Christ as his Savior and his Messiah. Very soon after, he started the first outreach of what became the American Board of Missions for Jews. Still in existence today, they call it now Chosen People Ministries, but it's the same organization. All started because a man read the prophecy of Daniel here and realized that Jesus the Messiah had already come. Listen, folks, let me wind up with these thoughts today. God is the God of history. He is the God of eternity. He is the timeless, eternal, sovereign ruler of his universe. He knows exactly what is going to happen because he is not bound by time, as we've said in past weeks. He knows the future perfectly. He knows exactly what's going to happen because he has planned what's going to happen. As the old phrase says, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. God is worthy to be trusted. It was, the, it was the, the plan of God for Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Here, 500 years before it happens, the angel Gabriel says, this is when the Messiah comes, and right after he presents himself, he's going to be executed, but not for himself. It was the plan of God for Jesus Christ to die for us. In fact, the book of Revelation calls Jesus the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was the plan of God for him to come at just the right time, at just this precise moment in history that God had planned, even to the specific year, month, week, and day, to die as our substitute, to be cut off, but not for himself, for us. And God keeps his promises. He performs his will. He is in total control of his universe. He knows exactly what is going on in this world, and he is performing his will and fulfilling his purposes. If we cannot study this today and see the, all the decrees of the Persian kings and the God calling, the, all, calling Cyrus by name a hundred years before he's born, and, and telling by the angel Gabriel the very day Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem and exactly what's going to happen, hey, God, God is performing his will, and he is fulfilling his purposes. The only question for us is, are we trusting him like we should be? Let's pray. Lord, when we look at who you are and what you do, we are just in awe. I have just been in awe this week, rereading and studying and looking at this amazing, incredible prophecy. And the precision... And, and the timing and exactly what's going to take place. You are, you are the God of history. You know exactly what's going to happen because you planned it. And Lord, I think of many, many of our folks, many of our friends, many of our loved ones. And I think of them in relationship to Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. You did not know, Jesus said to them, the time of your visitation. And it just makes me feel burdened, Lord, for people that I know you are working in their hearts. And I pray that they'll see it. That they'll recognize it. That they'll realize that this is their day. This is the day of salvation, the scripture tells us. I pray they will not miss 
the working of the Lord Jesus in their life as the people of Jesus' day missed, most of them missed it. Lord, we rejoice that as we go through the routines of our life as one little speck on this gigantic planet, and as we look around at this world and all the things going on in our nation and around our planet, Lord, we know that you are in total control of every single detail. You know what's going to take place. You planned it. You're bringing to, to, together your purposes, your will. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.